Father, thank you that we have such a wonderful, wonderful Savior whose name is Jesus. We've come to worship you tonight, Lord, to praise your beautiful and holy name. And Father, as we sit here at your feet, I pray that, that you would speak to us through your word. May the Spirit of God <clears throat> touch each of our hearts tonight, that we would be conformed more closely into the image of your dear Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Good evening, family. Happy March. Hey, spring month. Welcome back, Larry and Debbie. How was your trip? Good. We missed you guys. All right, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. And I know we've, we've gone as far as verse 8, but we're going to be studying verses 7 through 9 tonight. And tonight's message, I heard a lot of oohs and ahs earlier, works of the flesh. <laughs> works of the flesh. And as we studied the life of Solomon, as we've been looking at his life, Last time, we saw something that became a very, very large problem for him. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, it says, Neither shall he multiply, this is speaking of a king, wives to himself, that his heart turned not away. But what we found in the first part of this chapter is Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Sounds like trouble to me. The warning that God gave in Deuteronomy, it, it became a reality in Solomon's life, and his heart turned away from God, just as God said. And it's very sad, isn't it? Right. As his heart turned away from God, Solomon began to worship false gods. Look with me at verse 7. It says, Then did Solomon build a high place which is a shrine or a small temple for Chemosh. That, that name means destroyer or fish god, the abomination of Moab. And he built it in the hill that is before Jerusalem. The hill that's before Jerusalem. Think about this for a moment. What is it? What is the hill that's before Jerusalem? It's the Mount of Olives. Solomon introduced this false god, Chemosh, to Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And remember, God used Solomon to build the temple on Mount Moriah, which is the temple mount of Jerusalem. And by standing on Mount Moriah, you cannot not see the Mount of Olives. When we were there, we could very clearly see as we looked from from the Temple Mount outward across the Kidron Valley, we could see the Mount of Olives. Separated, the two mountains were separated, the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives separated only by that valley, the Kidron Valley. And here with an eye shot of the temple of the one true and living God, Solomon built this shrine right in the face of God and God's people on the Mount of Olives. It couldn't be much worse and more offensive to God. Solomon 
I think if we were to characterize him right now, we'd say, the guy's really out of control. And he really is. But it didn't stop there. Verse 7 says he built another shrine for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. So he's got the Moabites covered. He's got the Ammonites covered. And as we talked about last time, the worship of Molech involved the sacrifice of children. And they would take a newborn baby and place it in the outstretched arms of this metal statue, heated to red hot, and of course, you know the result of that. Solomon built an altar to this god, also on a Mount of Olives in the site of the temple. The Moabites, the Ammonites, who are they? Well, they're descendants of the daughters of Lot. The result of the incestuous relationship between Lot's daughters and their father Lot and brought forth these children, Moab and Ammon, fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites, idol worshipers. And here we see in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, we see King Solomon worshiping the gods of the Moabites and of the Ammonites. We could say, how, how could he? But then again, as a society, we can safely say we've built our own temples of idol worship as well, haven't we? Maybe not looking quite like that, but, but perhaps the temple of self-will. The temple of dependence upon everything but God. We've constructed temples of human rights based on our desires rather than God's Word. And it's getting worse. In so many ways, we've pretty much stuck our finger in the eyes of God. Verse 8 says, And likewise did he for all his strange wives, obviously trying to please them, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Talk about thumbing your nose to God. After all God had done for Solomon, and this is his response. How could he have ever done this to God after all God has done? Well, it came from compromise and a decision to rebel against God and His Word. And all of it, every single bit of what we read here is a work of the flesh. Following after the flesh. And you know what, family? Following after the flesh will always get you in trouble. And not only does this relate to Solomon, it also relates to each of us. And as you might expect, verse 9 says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. Remember, God came to Solomon twice, and he warned him, Don't disobey my word. Solomon, be careful of idolatry. And you see, God knew the tendency of Solomon, and he warned him in advance twice. He's saying, Solomon, there's, there's a weakness in your life. So stay alert to this. Pay attention to what I'm saying to you. But Solomon didn't pay attention. Maybe he wanted to pay attention, but wanting to and actually doing it can be two different things. But what happened to Solomon? Well, Galatians chapter 5. You can, in fact, head over there to Galatians chapter 5. But I want to read a couple of verses before, or as you're making your way there. It says this in verses 16 through 18. 
This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that you would or wish to do. And as we look at the life of Solomon and where the lust of his flesh takes him, it might be a good time to talk about this. Your Bibles are open to Galatians 5. And here in this passage, Paul describes to us the works of the flesh. And you know, and God is saying to us, our flesh needs to be tamed. Our flesh, which is our sin nature, it wants to take control. Isn't that true? And we can will to will to will that the desires of our flesh would be subdued. And it may work for a little while, but eventually it will rear its ugly head and our will will be overcome. The key thing is this, though. The solution. Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. And walking in the Spirit means to tread all around everywhere you go to be occupied with the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, we're to constantly live under the influence and direction of God's Holy Spirit. Meaning to immerse ourselves in the things of the Spirit. Spiritual things. And then we watch what He does. And as we walk in the Spirit, God does something wonderful. We get transformed, don't we? In fact, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 Paul the Apostle said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you see, the Spirit-led Christian is, is not under the law because his moral life is now governed by the Holy Spirit. So, I want to take time here to talk about these works of the flesh. Well, what are the works of the flesh? Well, in, in verses 19 through 21 in Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to turn there. It tells us this. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest which means evident, which are these. Adultery, and fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about a lifestyle here, isn't he? The works of the flesh are manifest, they're evident. And he, and he goes on, he, he gives us this whole list, and it's quite a list. He starts with idolatry, or excuse me, adultery, sexual activity of a married person with someone who is not their spouse. Then he goes into fornication, sex outside of the marriage relationship, and God says that's wrong. But what does the society say? Society says it's okay. And it's encouraged. God says it's reserved for those that are married. And it's a privilege to be shared only by those who are married. That's how man and woman become one flesh. And sexual relationships are reserved for marriage. 
And of course, God's definition of marriage is one man and one woman, one lifetime. Not man and man, not woman and woman. And the pattern for marriage goes all the way back to Genesis. In fact, chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In the New Testament, when Jesus was asked about divorce, he went all the way back to the beginning. He authenticated God's plan for marriage. He went all the way back to Genesis, which is where it has to begin. Man, however, has attempted to alter God's design for marriage. Not that it's new to today's times, but more and more, men and women are making a decision to live together or cohabit as if they are married. This is wrong, according to the Word of God. Romans 13, verse 13 says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. And the word chambering there means living together as husband and wife, but not married. It's common. But common doesn't make it right. No matter how popular, no matter how frequent, no matter how common, no matter... If a person thinks it makes sense, it'll never make it right. In fact, Exodus 23, verse 2 says, You shall not follow a multitude to do evil. Oh, there's multitudes doing evil. God says, don't follow them. If you think about it, the majority is usually wrong. We need to stay close to the Word of God. The standard of truth. And of course... It's not limited to the non-Christian world, this chambering. It's becoming more and more common among professed Christians. But James 4.4 says, whoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So this, this simple truth for a Christian to be living together with a member of the opposite sex, whether they are saved or not, is ungodly, unholy, and it's unscriptural. And there's no justification for it, no excuse that justifies it. And not only that, it's a poor witness for Christ, isn't it? Verse 19, Paul talks about uncleanness, which is just that filthiness of heart and mind that, that makes a person defiled. And a canon does mean sexual impurity. Titus 1.15 says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. And, you know, when we look around, we see uncleanness all around. It seems as though everywhere we look, there's spiritual poison. So we have to be very careful, don't we? We need to guard our minds from our surroundings. And, you know, one of the most important things we can do, and, and, and certainly something that would really help us, is to, not to place ourselves in spiritual harm's way. Don't allow yourself to get in a situation. Turn from it. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Never does it say entertain him. Negotiate with him. Don't try to influence him. Don't try to change his mind. You aren't going to change his mind. God says resist him. And don't give in and, or give up. The next work of the flesh that Paul speaks of as lasciviousness, refers to an unhealthy appetite for sex that shows no shame. Certainly, pornography contributes to lasciviousness. 
unhealthy sexual appetites, sexual addictions. Webster's Dictionary defines lasciviousness as loose, wanton, lewd, lustful, irregular indulgence of animal desires, a tendency to excite lust and promote irregular indulgences. So it's not just participating in such practices, but the tendency to excite lust. For example, dressing inappropriately in order to attract attention. In today's mail, I said to Jackie, you're not going to believe what we got in the mail. It's a, it's, a, it's a booklet or an advertising booklet from Kohl's, and right on the front cover is women dressed in their underwear. Ew. It's like, come on. I, I didn't ask for that. But you know, that's the way things are going. In verse 20, Paul mentions idolatry or idol worship. And you know what? Let's face it. We may not have any longer any little statues that we put on display and bow down and worship. But in the truest sense, idolatry is anything that we place before God or above God. Warren Wearsby, a great Bible commentator, he said, idolatry is putting things ahead of God and people. I found that to be a very, very interesting concept. He said we're to worship God, we're to love people, and we are to use things, but too often we use people, manipulating them for self-gain. We, we, we love self. We worship things, leaving God completely out of the picture. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus links our worship to our service. In other words, what we worship, we serve. And here's what he said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. So the Christian that devotes more of himself to his things is in danger of what? Idolatry. Anything that's a priority over God is idolatry. In verse 20, Paul mentions witchcraft. The Greek word for witchcraft is pharmakia, means the use of drugs, mind-altering drugs. We're not talking about aspirin or ibuprofen, not things like that, things that alter the mind. Why is it such a work of the flesh? Well, in Paul's day, if you were involved in magic or sorcery, you used drugs to bring about the evil effects. And of course, sorcery is forbidden in the Bible as are all the activities of the occult. And, and dabbling in drugs is playing with the devil. It's his potion. And it's a means of opening up your mind to him. So the taking of drugs and occult practices are linked together. And those that participate find themselves caught up in darkness. And it is darkness. The drug culture... and. In the world of the occult, they're so closely linked together because once a person starts indulging in those things, what happens is they're opening up themselves to demonic influences. And, you know, we see, it seems to me today, and you would probably agree with me, I think that evil is abounding and growing. Isn't it? Doesn't it seem that way to you? Well, it, it's certainly no coincidence because there's, there's a link between that evil that's abounding and increased drug use. And it's deadly and becoming more deadly. And isn't that the enemy's plan to destroy? Kill, rob, steal, destroy, lie, cheat, whatever it might be. That's his plan. 
So any activity that involves, invokes any spirit other than the Holy Spirit is a form of witchcraft. It's a form of sorcery, psychics, palm readers, horoscopes. All are designed by the enemy to take your focus off of God and upon the occult. Oh, and so many of those that I just mentioned, psychics, palm readers, etc., oh, they'll tell you things that they have no business knowing. Why? They're being used by the enemy to draw your attention to the enemy rather than God. So it's important that we understand where Paul is coming from in these passages. You see, he's, he saw in the church of Galatia the very things that he wrote about. And if they weren't a problem, he wouldn't even have mentioned it. But that's why, family, it's so incredibly important that we read and study the Word of God and stay close to the Lord so we understand the things that he, he warns us about. Just like Solomon, he warned Solomon, and Solomon wouldn't heed. In the church at Galatia, there are churches at Galatia, they began to embrace a works-based faith because of the evil influence of the false teachers, and that's not scriptural. So Paul gets out the compass, and he said, listen, you're off course. The works of the flesh are being made manifest because you're departing from the truth of God's Word. I'm looking for a Scripture passage. So here it is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He, he said, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth and crucified among you. He's saying, who's, who's tricked you into believing that these things are true and good? And Paul's saying, listen, when we depart from the Word of God, we depart from truth. And when we depart from truth, what happens is we begin to, we begin to embrace lies, don't we? And lies will enter into families. They'll enter into relationships. Lies will enter into and infiltrate the church. And as lies embrace, as families embrace the lies of the enemy, all of a sudden, and, and you've probably seen this, then, then the church becomes the enemy. Oh, they're just, they're way too legalistic, they're way too narrow. My kids love these books. They love the video games. They can't tell me what my kids can and cannot do. So I'll go to a church who will never tell us what to do. And where they end up? Well, you've heard of it. Seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly. And it becomes all about the warm fuzzies, doesn't it? But you know, our, our job... And ministry is not to give, give you a sense to make you warm and fuzzy, is it? You know, let's, let's face it, it feels good. You know, we, we like to feel good. But the best way to feel good is by walking with our Lord, obeying His Word, understanding His Word. That's where the blessings come from. Our job is what? It's to be a watchman. A watchman in the Old Testament was to take his position in the tower, keep his eyes open, and he would look for the enemy or enemy activity. And when he saw the enemy, he would sound an alarm and warn the people. 
And our job is to warn scripturally the pitfalls that we as Christians might fall into. So in essence, we're to be, we are called to be watchmen also, aren't we? In Paul the Apostle's farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said this in verse 31. He said, Watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one of you day and night with tears. He saw the harm coming. And he warned them, he warned them, he warned them to the point of tears. Warn of what? Well, verses 29 and 30 says, For I know this, that after my departing... He, see, he knew he was going away. After my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. And he's there not sparing you. Not sparing the flock. Also of your own self shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. We don't want disciples of ourselves. Why would we want more of us? We're disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And Paul said, I'm warning them. You know, as we talk about these these works of the flesh and we look at them, it can be very easy for us to get down or feel beaten up. But that's not the intent. God is faithful in communicating to us the things that are harmful to our walk with Him and our spiritual relationship with Him to warn us and to convict us. But keep in mind and don't ever forget if you're dealing with any of these works of the flesh, they're reversible. And praise God, they're reversible. Through repentance and obedience to the Word of God. And I am so thankful that God doesn't end on bad news, does He? He always ends with good news. And this, this epistle is no exception Following the works of the flesh, they're works of the Spirit. We're not going to get into that tonight. But Jesus' life didn't end on the cross, did it? No, it continued on forever in the resurrection. And we don't have to live lives that are dead in trespasses and sin. Family, we live, we live resurrected lives also. Our sin is washed away by the blood of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. We have a new life in Christ where old things have passed away Paul said, behold, all things become new. And we realize every single morning that God, you've, you've given me grace and, or you've given me mercy brand new. So tender and beautiful, so compassionate you are. And of course, showers us with grace. Yes, we stumble and fall, but God picks us up. He picks us up and He carries us. He holds us close. He shows us where we've fallen short. He says, just turn from it. And he said to the woman at the well, go and sin no more. He didn't condemn her. He said, go and sin no more. And God gives us every opportunity to change our ways and turn to His ways. And His ways are good. And they're right. And they're good for us. Well, Paul moves on next in verse 22. Hatred. We all know what hatred is and what it does. But it means without love or, or loveless, directly opposed to God's command to love one another. You know, maybe you hate green beans or spinach, but we're not to hate another human being. Sometimes that can be a struggle. Well, John speaks of this. He said this in 1 John 2, 9-11. through He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light 
and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, isn't that so true about hatred? It blinds your eyes to anything that's even remotely good about a person. Hatred is consuming, and it's decaying to our spirit. 1 John 3.15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and he know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And then in 1 John 4.20, it says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Why is this so important to God? It's because it's contrary to his command to love. I don't know if anybody here is dealing with, with hatred in your heart. It's a hard thing to acknowledge, isn't it? But God sees it. And if He's speaking to you, even through this, it's, it's time to repent and seek forgiveness and go to that person should God make him available or her available and confess and seek forgiveness. And that's where healing takes place. But he, but she, God says, that may very well be the case, but there's no place for hatred. Hatred, if left alone and not dealt with, leads to, verse 20, the word variance means contention, wrangling, or strife. And you know, you may not even see the person you have hatred toward, but just the mention of his or her name it can stir something up inside, can it? You may not have seen this person in years or months or whatever it might be, and all of a sudden you hear the name, and it's like, Ugh! you know there's something wrong, right? There's something wrong in our heart. You become contentious, perhaps. You strive, your countenance changes. You could become riled to anger, and you get a turning in your gut that consumes you. See, that's the danger of hatred that builds upon itself. Paul then mentions emulations, which is jealousy or rivalries, and how tragic, how tragic it is when Christians compete with one another and try to make one another look bad in the eyes of others. How can that happen? Well, it can happen through gossip, right? Tailbearing. Slanderous speech, disparagement of character, spreading someone else's sin out among the brethren. Paul said that's emulation. And you know, we can, we can cleverly disguise it too by making others feel like you're just concerned for that person. That's why you're sharing it. But the reality is you're not concerned at all because we want to share the dirt Let's not put one another down because you know what? One day, it could be us on the other side of it. And sometimes, you know, in our flesh, we just want to spill it out, don't we? Right. God says, no. We can conceal it in prayer too, can't we? Right. Sharing a little bit more information than we should. When it sounds good, it sounds like concern, but it's really not. Paul mentions wrath, 
The Greek word thumos means anger or rage, losing a temper. And the Irish nationality is no excuse. <laughs> There's no excuse. And you know, most of us can tell when we're about to lose our temper, can't we? We can. We can feel it. We can feel it building up. Thumos is a burning inside. Maybe your, your eyes begin to burn. Your, your adrenaline begins to flow and you're ready to engage in battle. And wrath shows up in the flesh and some might say, well, I can't help myself. I just have a bad temper. Well, that may be the case, but you need to learn to deal with it. How? How can we deal with it? Well, by not engaging it. You see, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control and wrath is self out of control. And when you sense wrath coming on, when you sense your temper button being pushed, there's a solution. Get away. Flee that very second. Walk away. Disappear until you can cool off before you speak anything. Well, I don't want to cool off. I got something to say and I got to say it right now. Well, if those thoughts are going through your mind, you know you got to turn around and run. Right? I'm guilty of this. And losing our temper hurts those around us. and It hurts us too. It hurts us as individuals, emotionally and spiritually and even physically. And you know, losing our temper never, ever, ever benefits anyone. And at the time, you think, well, if I can only get this out, I know I'll feel better afterwards. How many times have you thought that, said something, and then you don't feel better afterwards? You never feel better afterwards. Because we've damaged our spirit. Strife is contention, similar to variance. Seditions, Paul speaks of division within the body of Christ. Romans 16, 17, Paul said this. He said, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. You see, it's serious. Restoration is always the aim, but I can't say anything sometimes. We feel that way. I, I, I just can't speak up. I can't say it. But you know, we have an obligation before God to protect His body, don't we? That's, that's part of our role. And put an end to division. It's not, get Pastor Dan or Pastor Angie on the phone. Can you deal with this, please? That's not what the Scriptures say. best way is to deal with it when it's happening. And maybe, I, I just can't listen to this anymore. Please keep it to yourself. Heresies. In this case, in this section, doesn't refer to introduction of false teaching or doctrine. It has more to do with seditions that we just looked at. And inasmuch as seditions speak of those who cause division, heresies here refers to gathering people to yourself for the purpose of self-promotion. In fact, you know, Paul warned against, against that, didn't he? He said they'll heap up followers to themselves. He said this in, in Acts chapter 20. They'll make disciples of themselves or for themselves. You know, you've heard of church splits because someone in a body begins to stir people up to follow after him. That's a heresy in his context. So it has to do with a person that puts his or her, his or her own self-interest above that of the body. You know, it could, be, it could come at us like this. You know, I, you know what? I, I have this special revelation from God that nobody else has ever gotten. 
I've heard this before, believe me. You need to follow me. I mean, if I'm talking about in, in the heresy sense here. I got this great revelation, you've got to follow me. That's how churches divide. They can divide for good purposes too. We find examples of that in the Bible. But a division based on this is very, very dangerous and harmful. As Christians, we're part of the body of Christ. And we have a responsibility before the Lord to be a body builder, to edify, to encourage one another. That's the way God's designed it. So the parts of the body work together, fitly joined together, as Paul the Apostle would say. Verse 21, we find the next fruit of the flesh, envyings, grieving at the good of others. And you know what? This can be a hard one to admit, can't it? We're told, we're told in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And sometimes we do just the opposite. We weep over them that rejoice and rejoice over, rejoice over them that weep. In other words, we are to be happy for and rejoice over another person's blessings. But our flesh sometimes wants to stand strong in the path towards rejoicing and do the opposite. You know, maybe on the outside we have the appearance of rejoicing. Oh, I'm just, I'm just so happy for you. And inside, it's eating you up alive. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy is the rottenness of the bones. Why does God name envyings as one of the fruits of the flesh? And why, and why does he consider it a sin? And here's why. Because our envyings challenge the sovereignty of God. And here's how. God is sovereign, which means he cannot and never will make a mistake. And if he allows a blessing to flow to another person, who are we to question it? God told Moses in Exodus 33.19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And Jesus challenged His followers in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that spitefully use you. And then He said, speaking of His sovereignty, do these things, then you may be the children of your Father in heaven, for He maketh the, the sun, his son to shine to rise, excuse me, on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, how interesting is that? He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and the rain in this context is to be considered good and speaks of prosperity. And sometimes we can cry, not fair. God says, be careful, because we have no idea how God is working in another person's life. We have no idea what it will take to bring that person to salvation. But God does. Doesn't the Bible say it's His goodness that leads a person to repentance? Did you ever pray for, some, for God's good to be upon somebody that you really have struggles with? That don't know the Lord? See, this perspective is so important in our walk with Jesus because it allows us to let go of envy and trust God that He knows what He's doing. 
And if, if you're unwilling or unable to do that, you can become angry with people, and worse yet, angry with God. So rather than say, why did they or why didn't I, simply rest on a sovereignty of God that He knows what He's doing. He, he knows how to get our attention. Did He get your attention somehow that maybe you never figured? To... <laughs> In a way that you would have never guessed, God got your attention. And that's what He does all the way around the world. The next one that Paul mentions is murders, destroying another's life. No explanation necessary there. Drunkenness, excess in drinking of alcoholic beverages. <clears throat> Why is drunkenness named? It's because it makes the body feeble in resisting the fruit of the flesh. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying you can't have both. You can't have both. You can't be filled with the Spirit and drunk at the same time. Maybe you think you are, but you can't. It's not a spiritual high if you're drunk. So if we've allowed alcohol to influence our minds and our bodies, we're not walking in the Spirit. And we all know this to be true. If you ever had too much to drink. Revelings, it can mean excessive eating or gluttony as well as carousing. In the Greek culture, it meant merrymaking after supper where the guests would take the party to the streets and go through the city with torches, with music, songs in honor of Bacchus, the god of wine. And yes, it takes place today. There's a lot that takes place after dark into the late hours of the night in establishments that are very dimly lit. The works of the flesh. It's not pretty, but it's important we talk about these things. You know, Solomon, he followed the flesh, didn't he? Very clearly we see what took place in his life. Next time, Lord willing, a week from tonight, we're going to see how God responded to that. And God always responds in one way or another, doesn't he? So let's pray as our worship team comes up. It's certainly not a, not a fun message to give, but, but one that's necessary nonetheless. So, Father, we thank you for the Word of God, so beautiful and so wonderful and so truth-filled. And help us, Lord, not to do as Solomon had done, not to do as the Scriptures tell us and warn us against, but that we would walk in the Spirit. And the Scriptures say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And Father, help us to do that. Our, our heart's desire is that we would walk with you. We would be so full of the Spirit of God that, that anything that we've learned tonight the fruit of the flesh would have no place in us. 
And when, our, when we do, we want to allow our flesh to arise and take charge, Lord. We thank you for, for your Holy Spirit that convicts us. And may we respond to that conviction to turn from the things that are harmful, to turn from the things that you say we ought to turn from and turn to you. For you are our strength. You are our shield. And you are our exceeding great reward. So we come to you tonight, Lord. We so need you. We want to be good examples for you. So help us. Help us to walk in the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.